What would you think if a woman came to work wearing an earring stamped with the image of the mushroom cloud of Hiroshima's atomic bomb? What would you think about a church that was adorned with a fresco of massed graves from Auschwitz? Both visions, aren't they? They're grotesque. And they are not only just intrinsically abhorrent, but, but they are shocking because of the powerful cultural associations. The same sort of shocked horror was associated with cross and crucifixion in the first century. That's Don Carson's opening to his excellent little series, The Cross and the Christian Ministry. And it, it well tries to get you to feel the, the sensation of what the agents felt when they heard about this gospel message associated with a cross. Because what, what they heard to them must surely have been a most preposterous message that the Son of God came down and was put on a cross to save us. So when you look at the cross, what do you see? Do you see wisdom or do you see foolishness? This is the question for us that we must answer this morning. Do you see weakness in the cross or do you see power? Can you see the power and wisdom of the cross? If you see folly, then we understand that's the telltale sign that you are beholden to the world's wisdom. But if you see power, then God's wisdom has taken a hold of your heart and has taken off the blinders. So when you hear the message of the cross, what do you see? What do you hear? Because with the cross, it demands a response. And you can't have it both ways, you see. You can't walk the fence and say, well, you know, I think both sides make some good points. No, you can't have both. The cross demands that you choose a side. You can either have the wisdom of the world or you can have the folly, so to speak, of God. What will you take? Well, we know the right answer. We're reading it here. We want our hearts to resonate with this answer. And we're exhorting our hearts from the word this morning, this very thing. We need to wisely reject the world's wisdom. We need to wisely reject the world's wisdom. And instead, we need to, as a church, gather and rally and cling to the foolishness, even, if they would so call it, of the cross. This is the word that we are finding in 1 Corinthians. This is the answer to the Corinthians' divisions. And there are factions that are rising up. The cross must be central, that main thing that to which all God's people rally, and nothing else can take its center stage. So wisely reject the world's wisdom and cling, even if they call it, to the foolish cross. And we're going to see three reasons we need to do that, why we must cling to the cross. And the first is this, is that the cross determines man's destiny. The cross determines every person's destiny, where they stand for an eternity with God. You're either on the road to destruction or you're on the road to salvation. And I can tell you which road you're on by what you think about the cross. And evidently, the Corinthian church were at danger of moving away from the cross. See, this is what's happening. They're overlooking, they're preparing to put it aside, they're looking past, they're forgetting the cross. You know what we can do in the church so often is we just take the cross for granted. This is the issue or the challenge. But we can't do this. And we know it's a problem here 
of course, Paul's addressing it. But we know it's a problem here because it relates to that first issue that he's addressing with the Corinthians. Remember where we started so far? He's really been encouraging the church about, oh, God's at work in you, and he's not denying any of that. But he was not buttering them up, but preparing them, strengthening them to get ready. I got some hard things to say. And the first one is about all these factions and divisions among you. They were looking past the message of the cross and being fixed on the messengers, right? I'm of Paul, I'm of Paulus, I'm of Peter. And why were they doing this? But they were imbibing the world's wisdom, the way the world thinks about things. And in so doing, were putting style over substance. They were putting the medium over the message. And to verse 17, they were emptying the cross of its power. And so what was Paul's response? He says, I need to preach the gospel in such a way. I need to minister the gospel that I get out of the way. I want people to remember Christ. I want them to remember the cross. The focus needs to stay on him and the cross, not on my or anyone's abilities to exclaim it. And so we come to verse 18, where the cross stands as the great watershed for humanity. You know, the watershed are those points where the water's either going to flow this way or that way, but it won't stay there. And that way you see, looking here at verse 18, the cross is the watershed for every single soul. Let's see this, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it, the cross, is the very power of God. This is the dividing line. The cross is the dividing line where you stand with God. This is the great separation between the saved and the damned, and it's here at the cross. How you think about the cross, that exposes whether you're right with God or not. Far more than anything else in your opinion about any other matter. Your evaluation and esteem of any preacher, pastor, author, or minister, that's not what says whether you're on the road to salvation or not. The issue isn't, well, what do you think about Jordan Peterson and his thoughts? Or what do you think about Donald Trump or John Piper or even now Alistair Begg? What do you think about this? No, the issue is, what do you think about the cross? Because you see, the same cross, the same message produces two diametrically opposed opinions that lead to do very different destinations. And it's all about how you look at it. In this way, there's a sense where it's not the beauty is in the eye of the beholder, but some see the beauty and some don't. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so to be so plain about it, what is this word of the cross? It's not merely the word cross, of course. It's talking about the message, the message that's all about the cross, the gospel, the good news. Paul so succinctly and well summarizes it for us, doesn't he, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. When he says, the message of the gospel, the good news that we proclaim to you is that Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was so dead he got buried And then he rose from the dead on the third day, again, in accordance with the scriptures. This is the news we proclaim, and this is the news that God is saying, I can save you if you trust me in Jesus' work, not yours. That is the message of the cross. But you see here, 
Paul summarizes it by the cross. He's not talking first about good news. He's not mainly talking about gospel. He's not even mainly talking about the resurrection. But he centers on this word cross. And once he does this, he understands what's going on, especially there in the first century. Once you focus on cross, you have moved to those who would listen. You've made this message something from hard to believe to a scandalous message, an offensive message to those of the first century. Again, this is why the one and same gospel message will produce such diametrically opposed reactions. One sees it as the height of folly, of course, and the other sees it as the very power of the Almighty. But first to it, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. And frankly, in my own estimation of the English language, which I grant is very limited, by the way, but folly is just far too nice a word. The Greek word here is the word we get our own word moron from. The cross in this way is moronic. It is, you'd have to be, it's madness. You would have to be a crazy person to believe in this message of the cross. That, that, that's the kind of word that is seen here. The cross in general, you understand, was just particularly despised by the ancients. That's how we opened, wasn't it? Thea Carson was helping us to, to get a feel for that. But Cicero, from that time period, he shared the common sentiment of the Romans as they thought about the cross. He said this, the very word cross should be far removed from the Roman citizen's thoughts and his eyes and his ears. In other words, it's not even polite to mention the cross. Like You just don't even say that. You think about words in our culture, whether it's associated with, with race or moral atrocities, it's just not polite to mention those. You can't joke about those. Well, the cross was one of those words. And why? And that might seem surprising to us because the cross is so common now. I mean, everywhere you look, there's a cross everywhere. Probably some of us are wearing them as necklaces or as earrings, right? I see one. There it is on the PowerPoint presentation behind me. The cross is everywhere. And yet, maybe we've become all too familiar with the cross, and we've missed what it represented, at least to the ancient culture, which to them, what did they see with the cross? They saw, they saw its bloody brutality. They had seen the torture. They had seen people agonizing on crosses at the crossroads. You know, the Romans, they were, they were pretty skilled at torture. They came up with the crucifixion in this way, at least done just like this, the way Jesus was crucified. And furthermore, they knew they didn't do it in, in, in the back. They didn't do it where people would go unseen. They put the person on the cross at the crossroads so everybody going in and out of town would see the person suffering and dying, which would tell everybody, you mess with Rome, this is what happens to you. And get this, you know, we talked about Cicero and his comment that basically it's too, you can't be polite and mention the cross. This is how the Romans thought about the cross. These are the gladiator games Romans. They won't even mention the cross. The shame, the brutality, the barbarity was just too much. And so when Paul preaches a message that Jesus comes and he died on a cross, their response, you're telling me God came down from heaven, one, 
to die, which that sounds crazy, but then two, to die like this? No way. That's barbaric. And not just the Greeks, but the Jews too, of course, they find the cross very offensive. Why? Because Jesus is hanging on a tree. That means in Deuteronomy that he's bearing the curse of God. What do you mean the Messiah is going to be cursed? He's to be beloved of God. And yet there he is hanging on a tree. That's your Savior? Well, you can have him. He couldn't even save himself. Remember, like they mocked him as Jesus literally hung before their eyes. But so you get it. The the response of the world to hearing the message of the cross isn't merely disbelief or disinterest, but it garners their ridicule, you see. The, The word of the cross moves them to revile it, to ridicule it. How gullible, right? How dumb, how stupid and mad would you have to be to believe in that? We have proof of this even from the earliest centuries. You know, the oldest picture, pictorial representation, drawn of Jesus being crucified, I think it's from the second century, it's a ridiculous insult. Uh, What it is, it's a picture of Jesus being crucified, and then there's a man worshiping him. By the way, as an aside, the early church had no qualms about worshiping Jesus. They knew he was God right from the get-go. Anyway. There's this man worshiping Jesus while he's crucified. In the script, the etching says, Alexamenos, that's the guy's name, worships his God. And it's evidently, though, clearly a mockery because Jesus is being crucified, but he's depicted with a donkey's head. This is what they think of the crucified God. Mocking Alexamenos, the Christian, and his crucified Christ. But you understand, I trust you feel, the mocking didn't stop in the first century, did it? I mean, today, what do we hear, even from supposed Christians? The the cross is pejoratively called the cosmic or divine child abuse. Can you feel the kind of shame they're trying to put on you for extolling the cross? Instead of praising God for the cross, you should be appalled. You should be sickened that God would be so twisted to abuse his own son. That's not love, that's sick. That's what the world's telling you when they say the cross is foolishness. Well, that's one perspective. And the other sees it very differently, though they're looking at the same thing. Verse 18 again. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. On the one hand, those who believe, those who are being saved, we see the cross and we see the glory of the power of the Almighty God at work. The sending of His Son, this was not child abuse, it was love. And the greatest kind of love because He gave over the one He cherished most for you. He laid it all down, right? And He did it in the most torturous way that man could conjure up. And then to only have victory, to say you can do your worst, but it's not enough. The cross is one. This is the power of God to take our curse, take our shame, and then forgive us and make us right with God. That is the power of the almighty God to save, and he did it through the cross. But do you then see, the cross says something then about your future destiny. It tells us the eternal road you're on. 
For the cross is folly. It's moronic, madness to those who are perishing. While to those of us being saved on the road to salvation, the cross is God's power unleashed. So what fixes, what determines man's destiny? It's not how persuasive and thoughtful and smart the preacher is. And we all said, praise God. It's not how desperately we can plead with someone. It's not even how well we might live out our Christian ideals, as important as that is. But none of those things can tap into the human heart and move someone from death to life. Only one thing can do that, the Spirit working through the message of the cross. And so then to boil it down in the church, you know, he's dealing with the factions and the divisions. So it's like he wants to tell the Corinthians, so you want to fight, you want to argue, and you want to separate in your church over this, over this Bible teacher, that he's better than that one? What, is the power in them, or is it where? In the cross. Or similarly, for us, why do we cower and clam up and we, we wring our hands, oh, I don't know if I can share the gospel, I don't know if I can convince anybody, I don't know all the arguments. Where's the power? Is it in you or is it in the cross? Praise God it's in the cross. Now to be sure, we can be to blame, but if what? If we fail to mention the cross. And you might want to do that. That is, you might be tempted to do that. Why? Because you know if you mention the cross, I mean, think about it in the first century, but it's true today. You mention the cross, what's going to happen? People might get offended. You know, the message of the cross isn't just smile, God loves you. The message of the cross is rugged. The message of the cross is painful. The message of the cross is humiliating. Because get this, when you mention the cross... Then you got to mention why. And then if you mention why, you're going to have to mention sin. And when you mention sin, you're going to have to mention guilt before God. Then you're going to have to mention evil. And then what are you going to have to do? You're going to have to connect the dots for them and say, and you're a sinner. And you are guilty. And you are evil. And you're under God's wrath. And guess what? They don't want to hear that. And you know what else you're going to have to mention? With that, you're going to have to mention, yeah, you're evil, and God's calling you to change. He's calling you to repent. Don't you see that's why churches today are wrangling over this homosexual issue and, and how we identify and so forth? Because get this, if it isn't sin, then you don't have guilt, and you don't have to change, and then you don't need what? You don't need to repent. But then also, don't what you need. You don't need the cross. Because God just takes you as you are. The cross is then needless. It's foolishness. But know this. To so redefine sin sells the power of the cross far, far short. Because he can deal with that too. Whatever sins they are, you can be saved from them. You can be saved from their guilt. You can be saved from their judgment. You can even be saved from their power right now. But that only comes, we know where, by the power of the cross. We must cling to that cross. And we will do so also because the cross humiliates man's wisdom. That's why we cling to the cross. 
It shines a light into our darkness. You might say another way, the cross exposes our folly, the folly of man's thinking. It brings us to the truth. It brings us to the light. We can never let go of the cross. Verses 19 to 21. But first, looking back to verse 18, yes, it's true, the cross seems like foolishness to some and the very power of God to others, but why is that? Why does it work this way? Why does it work this way that with one people, we look at the cross and have such changed opinions here? Well, let's see. He gives part of the answer even as we start verse 19. For, he's going to give you the reason, it is written. And it's written where? Well, he's quoting Isaiah, which means he's quoting God. Why is it like this? Why is it when we bring forth the one cross message that people either run or they cling? God planned it that way. Even as Paul cites in the scripture here to make so clear, verse 19, for it is written, I, God speaking, will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Interestingly, this is a quote from Isaiah chapter 29 where he's rebuking the Jewish wise people. He's not even dealing with the wise pagans, so to speak, out there. He's dealing with the wise religious people first. So for myself, I think when I read through texts like this, I think also like of Romans 1, and I immediately think of the atheists that I was or, or the pagans and how wise we think we are with science or whatever. And that's true. That needs to be confronted. But the first place he goes is actually to the religious conservatives. We're not exempt from spiritual folly either. Or better said, you just might call it spiritual pride. And here's what's clear. Whether you're a proud atheist or you're a proud, self-righteous person, God is intent on taking down your so-called wisdom. I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. I mean, I can just hear him. You think you're pretty smart, do you? You know, in a way, fast forward to the, or rewind, go back to the book of Job. Job, you think you're pretty smart, do you? I got a few questions for you. God, I got you figured out. I know what God thinks, and I know what he likes, and of course, it's me. God intends to expose the folly of such arrogance. Such that when God then turns to the landscape of all the wise, all the insightful, all the experts, all the scientists, all the best-selling authors, there's no true wisdom among them all. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has God not made foolish the wisdom of the world? For all of their wisdom, for all of their continuing research and federal grants and research projects and green initiatives and rocket ships, they're still out looking to try and find answers. In large measure, you know why? Because in all their supposed wisdom, they discount from out of the gate, out of hand, the one true answer. Because they don't want to hear it. Even you'll hear them say, oh, that's not scientific to say God's the answer. God can't be the answer. Well, if you say that from the get-go, guess what? You'll never find God as the answer. You know, it was evident to me this past week was our family's spring break, at least the school-wise. It didn't feel too spring outside. That wasn't too bad. But we took some time. We were up at D.C., and we were seeing some of the different museums and monuments this past week. And uh, just made so evident that mankind, in every which way, is just still trying to look for answers. 
Uh, so first of all, we know mankind's been digging through all the dirt, trying to find proofs and bones and that missing link to try and finally answer the question, where did we come from? That was in the Natural History Museum. And then you walk across the lawn and you go to the Air and Space Museum. And they assure you, no, no, the answer, if we just keep shooting farther and farther away from Earth, once we get to colonize Mars, or we shoot farther, so to speak, in the future, we'll finally find the answers to the questions. Well, what if you had the answer all along, but you just didn't want it? Is that wisdom then? Even if you colonize Mars or find the cure for cancer. Because get this, God has not come to have a relationship with us. He's not come to reveal himself to us on our terms. Now, this was the problem in the garden from the very beginning. We said, I'm going to have it on my terms, God. I'm going to be wise. I'm going to know good and evil. I'm going to be like you. And God says, we need to start over. Which means you need to take your throne, your wisdom, and get off of it. We're going to come on his terms. Verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, this was God's plan, that what? The world did not know God through wisdom. God has made sure the world will never know him on their own terms. Intentionally. We don't come to God to get a higher esteem about ourselves and our intellect that we can figure all of this out. We come to God to get an accurate view of ourselves, which means as we draw near to Him, by comparison, all of our cherished knowledge and wisdom, guess what it looks like actually? Oh, it's moronic folly is what it is. And to underscore this point, we see God has purpose to humiliate our wisdom. How? By saving sinners through what we thought was the most foolish idea of all, the cross. The end of verse 21, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. What is what we preach? He's talking, of course, about the cross. And what does the cross appear like to the world? Madness, foolishness. But to those who are being saved, what is it? It's the very power of God. It looked like sure folly at first, sure. But now I've come to see. This is God's power to redeem. This is the ultimate wisdom of God. Oh, you see, God's foolishness, oh, it's so much wiser than all of man's wisdom and freshest ideas. That means we have to think God's thoughts after him. We have to take God at his word and think like him, not branch out on our own trying to think our own way. That's wisdom. He's humiliated. He's abominated our wisdom. We need to think like him. So we have to guard our hearts against over-esteeming our own insights and wisdom, really clinging to our folly. And so how do we do that? I want to give you three just quick hit strategies on ways to guard against esteeming man's wisdom too highly. And the first is this. Be skeptical of the skeptics. How do you pursue God's wisdom? How do you put down man's wisdom? Be skeptical of the skeptics. You got to know, those that attack the Bible or wish to undermine the story of the cross, 
they're not unbiased observers. They have an agenda, is what I'm getting at. They want to justify their own wisdom. They want to justify to you and I think to themselves that their lifestyle, the way they think, who they love, and how they live are all okay because the cross doesn't matter. But the point is, they're not neutral. And actually, we know from Ephesians chapter 2, they're dead set on opposing God. So are you surprised what they put forward tries to undermine the cross? Did God really say, right, was the lie from the, the servant? Never assume, however they frame it, that their skepticism comes from a wise mind and heart. You got a choice. You can answer this. Who is wiser? You got the skeptic or God? I know who I will choose. Second, fill your mind with wisdom, not folly. This is tougher than it sounds because there's folly all around us. And more than that, we come out of the womb dumb, spiritually dumb, can't see, don't understand, foolish. And so we're used to thinking in dumb, foolish ways. But this is fundamental in our conversion. You know, the word repentance, even just breaking down the words, it's a change of mind that results in a change of life. It's Christ's work in the heart. And starts with the cross and it moves out through your life. Of course, we know this. Romans chapter 12. You know this verse. Do not be conformed to this world, which you are born. We got to be changed. How's it going to happen? But by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. But that kind of transformation is not going to happen too well or too fast if we keep filling our mind with foolish thinking. And we swim in it, guys. It's everywhere. Everywhere you look. And if you know, for our minds, you know what it is too often? It is just garbage in, and guess what comes out? Garbage. If you spend most of your time listening to the world's wisdom, are you surprised you still think like the world? And here's the thing. We can memorize stand-up jokes, movie lines, song lyrics, and then somebody talks about, well, have you tried memorizing some scripture? And we're like, can't do it. I'm in my early 40s. My memory is gone. <laughs> and yet we still can memorize stuff somehow. But when it comes to the word, I get it. It is hard. But do you know why it's hard? Because we're fools. That's why. It's not going to be easy. Your flesh isn't going to want it. And the world's not going to encourage it. But it's worth the work. Oh, meditating and ruminating. That's where wisdom comes that's where the fear of the Lord is gained. That's wisdom. But we will think little of God's word and have little wisdom if we are not, one, constantly in the word ourselves, and then two, though, tied to that, you gotta be doing something with it. You can't just hear the word and be the same, and you need to be talking about it. That's part of why we gather as the church. You need the constant encouragement of the word. And so third, my third strategy here, you got to see the importance of having brothers and sisters walk with you in wisdom. You need the church. You need the testimony. You need the urging. You need the voices. You need the songs when you come in here. Because you might have got out of the wrong side of the wisdom bed. And you were thinking all like the world's wisdom. And you came in here maybe hopeless, maybe quite discouraged, maybe losing sight of Christ. That's normal, by the way, for us unwise people. That's all of us here. We come in thinking like that, and what do we need? 
I need my brothers and sisters either side of me saying, no, extol the cross. Oh, yeah, but he is one. Oh, yes, but there is wisdom with him. And you need it more than just on Sunday. You need biblical counseling every day of your life. That's, again, what the church is for. Brothers and sisters pointing you the way back to Christ every day, as Hebrew says, as long as it's called today. And parents, get this, your kids need that too. We can talk about however form you want to talk about. We can talk about family worship, and we can talk about catechizing our kids. And we can make divisions about that. Let's not do that. But more simply, are we speaking into their hearts the wisdom of God? Furthermore, are you putting them before others who are going to speak God's word into them? Ah, but they don't want to go to Sunday school. Ah, my kids, they don't really want to go to youth group. You know what I want to say to that? So what? What if your kids didn't want to go to school? You're like, we homeschool, it doesn't matter. No. Never want to eat your vegetables. Okay, here's chocolate chip cookies. No. Why? Because folly's bound up in the heart of a child. They need wisdom. If they don't want to go, you say, so what? You're going. Now, again, let's not divide and get caught up in whatever form or externals. You've got particular kids. You're entrusted with shepherding them. I get that. There's more than one way to get the wise gospel word into their hearts. But just to sum it up, are you taking that stewardship seriously? Because the world is seriously sowing all kinds of folly into their minds and hearts every day. And get this, it's the kind of folly we saw in verse 18, it leads to their destruction. There's too much at stake. That kind of prideful folly of the world never leads to life. Finally then, we must cling to the cross because the cross defies Man's expectations. You might say exceeds man's expectations, but it defies them all. And what I mean is is that we might be asking for one thing, we might be looking for one thing, but the cross defies them and gives them the thing you actually need. And we see that here in this first comment of verse 22, namely that The cross isn't maybe what we want. It's not what we're looking for, but it's what we need. Verse 22 here, it says, For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. So this sums up, you know, in two categories, the people of the first century. Jews wanted signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. And in many ways, it's like atheists today who demand, Well, God, if you're real, then appear right now. Write it in the cloud, I am God. Or speak in the thunderclap, and then I'll believe. No, they wouldn't. They didn't believe back then when Jesus rose from the dead. Why? Because they didn't want to believe. They didn't want to believe the implications of all this. Again, because if this is true, Jesus really rose from the dead, then I need to change. I need to repent. And so what do we do? We explain it away. Even things like the resurrection, you just go, wow, that's weird. Even as they try and explain the origin of everything, 
It's easier for them to believe we all came from nowhere than we all came from God. Furthermore, though, it's like the religious person, maybe on the other side. What are they looking for? I think many of us are looking for like some kind of spiritual experience, some spiritual high. Oh, that's where the truth is. And we've seen it in excesses, particularly in the charismatic church, right? You got strange tongues, people being slain in the spirit. You got supposed miracles or just even more basic. You just got, it's all about the moving worship music or the right spiritual ambiance. And that's where the truth is. You know, if it taps my foot or moves my heart, that must be true. Okay. That's what people are asking for. That's what they want. God knows this. And so what does he give them? Verse 23. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. Guess what? It's not what they wanted. No, regardless of what they were actually asking for, regardless of what they think they want, Paul's going to give them Christ Jesus and him on a cross. Why? Because that's what we need. We're like a patient that's coming to a doctor, asking for a certain treatment or medicine, and in our folly, we don't even realize we're asking for the wrong thing. I recall I was struggling with this What I was certain was the sinus infection. Oh, the front of my head was just killing me. And the week was getting on, and my voice sounded too horrible. And I needed the antibiotic quick. I knew I need to get to a doctor before the weekend so I can get the antibiotic and so I can actually feel okay to actually preach on Sunday. And so I was all assured of this. I got my doctor's appointment all set up. And I went in, and I'm like, this is going to be the shortest doctor's appointment ever. It's basically going to be, hi, doctor, give me the antibiotic. I'm ready. And uh, only the doctor assured me, oh, but the antibiotic's not going to do you any good. And I'm starting to get really discouraged at the moment. And uh, I was certain I had some horrible infection. And she said, I don't think so. Uh, You know what you have? Allergies. I'm like, no, I have had allergies my whole life. This is not allergies. This is horrible. So instead of walking out with the miracle prescription, I walked out with a little green bottle of Flonase. Even still, I was so skeptical. I was certain this is never going to work. I'm not going to be able to minister this weekend. I'm totally bummed because this was my one shot to get the medicine. I'm like, do I go to another doctor to get the meds? But you know what? I felt great on Sunday (laughs) because I used the Flonase four times a day or whatever the prescription was. Cleared it up right, right away. But I had to trust the doctor's wisdom over my own and the prescription. Such that many of us don't want to trust the great physician. And he knows the answer to what we need. But some do. By the mercy of God. Not all see it as foolishness. And so here we are, verse 24. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And in the original language, it's of God the power and of God the wisdom. God's the one center stage here. And I trust you see the great reversal here. The answer of the foolish desires of the Greeks and the 
Jews. See, the Jews, they're asking for a sign. They want some confirming power to show us that this really is one speaking on God's behalf. And Paul's saying, yeah, but I'm going to give you the power of the cross. You want to see power? Go look at the cross. Because what happens? The great devil and death have been vanquished at the cross. There's no greater power than that. Well, what about the Greeks? They want wisdom. But the cross serves as the wisest move imaginable. For what can happen to the cross? God can be a good judge and punish sin to the full. And he can be a good God and show mercy to those who didn't deserve it. That only happens at the cross. There's no wiser move than this. That's the kind of wisdom that is worthy of our full devotion, adoration, and praise. Because to see it, as he talks about here, it's a work of God. We'll talk more about this, Lord willing, in coming weeks. But the called see it for what it is. Those who have been beckoned and drawn to God by the Holy Spirit, the blinders fall off. See, in this way, the gospel, it's not a contradiction. It's not an absurdity. The problem is, in our blindness, we can't see it for what it is. As Paul talks about the God of this world, Satan's blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. But when those blinders come off, you see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So call the cross God's foolishness all you want. But I'll take his folly over my supposed wisdom any day, all day. Why? Verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men. And the weakness of God, even that, is stronger than all men. And that's at no greater display than at the cross, right? And that way you see the cross, it's not a contradiction, but it is a marvelous irony. It looks like defeat, but it was victory. It looks like weakness, but it is the greatest strength. It looks like sheer foolishness, but it's the wisest move of all. The cross, what did it look like? They even mocked him. He can't even save himself. It looks like the curse of God and death, and yet it's the very way he brings life and blessing to all that trust in him. And it's this assessment of the cross that distinguishes us from the world. And that way the cross changes everything. It marks us out from those who are perishing to those who are being saved. It marks us out as the people of God who are called because we've embraced what the world's called folly. And to that then, if this is the message that brings us out of the world and it brings us to Christ, you've got to understand this cross message also brings us together. It holds us together. Paul puts it like this in Ephesians chapter 2. He says, this is 2.16, And Christ might reconcile us both, he's talking the context of Jews and Greeks, might reconcile us both to God in one body, but note this, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He means the hostility, the factions between, between men. And Christ came and preached peace to those who were far off, the Greeks, and preached peace to those who were near, the Jews, that through him, that is Christ and his cross, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. 
The cross and its message and its fact, it draws us to God and unites us to one another. So what this means, when divisions are springing up in the church, you know, cliques are forming, fissures are starting, you're feeling yourself, I don't want to reach out, I don't want to try and reconcile, I don't want to move forward. You know what's happening when all of those things are coming about? We're losing sight of the cross. That's what's happened. Things have become out of balance and something else is taking center stage. Now, as the evangelical church, we are prone to fads. And you can think of them all. But no fad, no ministry model, no theological emphasis can take the center and hold the church together. You can't even have expository preaching at the center and hold the church together. Or elder leadership or baptism, or gospel music, or Calvinism, or family integrationist, or age segregated, or being missional, or whatever else. It's like trying to put the earth as the center of our solar system. You know what happened with that? Everything would fly out of orbit, and everything would collapse on itself. It would be destroyed. Because the earth doesn't have enough weight, enough significance, enough gravity to hold everything else in orbit. But the Son of God and His cross, that's the only thing weighty enough to hold the churches, all of our other good passions and concerns, but in proper orbit, all centering around Jesus and His cross. So we got to keep it front and center, don't we? we got to keep the main thing, the main thing. And that is the folly, if the world would call it, of the cross. Let's pray for His help in that. Let's pray together. Lord, give us the strength, the wisdom, the discernment to stand with you, even against all the world, to know that wisdom is truly yours. You are the one who is wise. And we thank you that in your wisdom, in your merciful wisdom, you've given us eyes to see the greatness of Jesus Christ. Uh, Help us to encourage one another not to lose sight of that, that we would cling to the cross. For there we will be one and messengers that you have sent to the world. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.